Welcome to the Cybersecurity Cohort. If you're exploring the topic of cybersecurity with an interest in a role that enables safe cyber practices, join your host, Heather Holliday, as she shares her cybersecurity learning journey in every episode. Now here's your host, Heather Holliday. In today's episode, we'll explore the topic of authentication and access management policies. I'll share some details about the overarching consideration for good authentication and access management practices in the context of cybersecurity. Before advancing the discussion, let's first define what we mean by access control policies. NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, has two definitions for access control policies. One, high-level requirements that specify how access is managed and who may access information under what circumstances. Sources, NIST, SP 800-192. And two, the set of rules that define the conditions under which an access may take place. Sources, NISTIR 7316. When it comes to access control policies, there are two major factors to consider. Firstly, cybersecurity professionals should consider what can be accomplished by using technology versus what really must be managed by policy alone. Whenever possible, it's always best to apply technical security safeguards. This can prevent both accidental security failures as well as intentional security failures propagated by internal threat actors or other hackers. Of course, you can enhance the security and reduce risks by applying compensating controls to policy-driven safeguards, but it's also important to keep in mind that anything that is managed by policy alone is by nature less secure. Another overarching factor is to focus on where you can prevent versus where you can detect a security failure or concern. As Ben Franklin famously said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If there are actions you can take to ward off a problem, reduce the risk, or reduce the impact, the action is well worth taking. It's much more valuable to prevent a problem, especially when it comes to cybersecurity issues. Sometimes, the first action in an investigation is to figure out how the problem even started. Then you'd want to dig deeper with further evaluation on the best way to mitigate the issue. These investigations can pull resources away from other priorities, though. So, whenever possible, it's best to head the problem off at the pass, so to speak. With these considerations in mind, let's jump into the policies themselves. Many cybersecurity policies are intended to help prevent problems before they start. Policies are also used to advise and educate employees on the actions they must take in order to protect the company's assets. And oftentimes, that includes protecting the employees themselves. Authentication and access management policies cover a broad spectrum, including password and credential policies, account type policies, privileged access management policies, policies for prohibited behavior, disablement policies, authentication services policies, software preferences, and technical requirements. Password policies and credential policies. If you unpack password and credential policies, there are a number of requirements that are key to building a cyber safer environment. 
it's important to note that quite a lot in the realm of cybersecurity is about balance. Here, I want to emphasize how important it is to balance the need for security with a good user experience. So policies must balance the need for security against the needs of the business and its users. Users are more likely to abide by policies that require a reasonable action rather than those that go to extremes. If you want users to abide by the policies instead of creating workarounds, or worse yet, ignoring the policies completely, you'll need to consider their experience. For example, if you really wanted to go bananas with strong, secure passwords, you'd add policies that would require lengthy, complex passphrases that would change with great frequency, daily even. But that would create a horrible user experience, and it would be a big headache to manage too. Of course, this is a totally over-the-top example, but I think I illustrated my point. If you go too far on the extremes of security, you have a problem. And if you aren't thinking about security at all and only focused on what will sell, 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 you will certainly have more than a few problems. Finding the right balance can be really tricky, but this is where the wonder that is GRC comes into play. Much of what I love about governance, risk, and compliance is the very nature of balancing the many different perspectives to create a sensible policy that serves the needs of the customer, the needs of the business, the needs of the regulators, and the needs of security effectively. I think we can all agree that this is something that our friends in Congress miss the boat on more often than not. I mean, half the time, they don't even seem to read the laws they are legislating before they approve them. But I digress. As for the rest of us out here in the real world, we can't afford to build policies and procedures that way. A policy is only useful if people are willing to follow it. In order for people to abide by the policies, they need to, un need to strike a careful balance between ideals and reality. And they need to consider multiple points of view. Here, I'll emphasize that effective policy writing is one of a million reasons why diversity matters. But yet again, I digress. Password policies have quite a lot to consider, including how you set up the controls to prevent, detect, monitor, log, and even self-correct to prevent a cyber issue from occurring. First, Let's reflect on what we discussed in the last episode. We talked a lot about how pins, passwords, and passphrases are designed and what makes them more secure. Password policies can be put into place to ensure the best practices are followed. For instance, we talked about how important the length of the passcode is. Companies need to consider what they want to require in the password selection. Companies should define the requirements for the minimum and maximum number of characters in the password used in their systems, applications, and accounts. Is three characters enough? Is it too much to ask for the passwords to be at least 15 characters long? There is quite a lot to consider before you even get a chance to write the first draft of the policy or set the technical guardrails in place. Who gets to decide what the threshold is? What data did they use to make their determination? What is the process for making these decisions? 
It's also important to keep in mind that time changes just about all things, especially when it comes to determining best practices in cybersecurity. Several years ago, a four-digit PIN would have been viewed as a rather secure way to guard your system, but this isn't true any longer. So the other point I'll make here is that policies should be reviewed and reconsidered on a regular basis to address the new threats and new technical advancements. Along with length, complexity of password is also something that should be included in the password policy. While requiring the highest level of complexity may seem like a natural answer, those setting policy need to consider factors such as what type of device is commonly used to log in? Is the user expected to remember the password temporarily for one-time entry, such as a secondary pin with an authenticator? Or are they expected to remember a single password over a longer term? Are there any special characters that need to be excluded, such as those that are commonly used in coding to prevent certain types of security breaches? Are there differences in keyboards or keypads that need to be considered when setting the policy? For example, letters in an alphabet and special symbols used vary by language. If your company is international, you'll want to consider the experience of your entire population and not just your US-based English speakers. As you can see, the considerations for complexity are, well, complex. Many of the determinations of password length and complexity are actually well-documented with recommendations from credible sources. So, in actuality, your company is most likely to follow guidelines such as those from NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and other reputable sources. However, as a cybersecurity professional, you'll want to know and understand where these password policies used in your organization come from. If you keep track of current trends and new innovations, you may even be in a position to encourage advancements in your company's policies. So whether you're the CISO making the decision on the policy or not, it's still important for you to know and understand the reasoning behind these password policies. Another password-related consideration includes password keys and account lockout policies. Let's face it, our users are humans, and humans forget things and make mistakes. So our password policies have to account for the times that the users enter their passwords incorrectly. Maybe they're trying to use the last password instead of the current one. Maybe they just mistype something, especially if it is a long password. Or maybe the user is trying to break into an account that isn't even their own. How you'd address each of these situations is very different. Your password policy should address what happens when an incorrect password is entered, how many times an incorrect password can be entered, and over what period of time, and what action you may require the user to take. Password keys and lockout policies need to be prepared to address a number of different types of scenarios in order to be truly effective. Password keys refers to the process that is used to help a customer either remember their password or reset it. These policies should be considered, should also consider alert systems for resetting credentials. 
I'm sure you've received an email or text message alerting you that someone was trying to break into one or another of your accounts. This is particularly prevalent in social media platforms. Sometimes these alerts tell you that they out and out blocked a fraudulent attempt to access your account with a recommendation that you reset your credentials. Other times, you may just receive a one-time passcode and a text message for an account you either know you don't have or you know you weren't trying to access. Policies that require alerts like these are helpful because they make users aware of potential issues and encourage them to take action to prevent their credentials from being cracked. It's also important to consider at what point is your company willing to block or close an account login entirely? These decisions here also depend on a number of factors. How sensitive is the data that can be accessed if the credentials are stolen? What next actions should be, could be taken by a hacker if they were able to break into an account? What are the legal and regulatory ramifications for access to the account by a fraudulent user? Using healthcare as an example here, if the account in question includes patient healthcare records, such as diagnoses, medications, and other personal information, allowing a questionable login to be successful has serious consequences. If the next actions are to reorder medications that are controlled substances and change the delivery address for the medications, as you can imagine, this could be quite serious. The legal and regulatory requirements for both privacy of health records and the laws regarding controlled substances are rather serious with significant consequences. Password policies also need to consider the rules for reuse and expiration. Can a user reuse a password after a month has gone by? After a year? Never again? Can they make minor changes to an existing password, such as adding a one to the end or changing a lowercase to an uppercase when they reset the password? How often do passwords expire? After 30 days, 90 days, a year? The good news here is that many of these policies can be set through automation, which will be much more successful than by written policies alone. After all, if it just says so on a document, but no one ever reads it, it's not really going to be effective. Account type policies. As mentioned in the previous episode, one way to control access privileges is through the use of rules and roles. There is no limit to the manner in which a company can set up its account types. So the actual structure of the account types is often a topic of much discussion. To simplify the discussion for the purpose of this episode, it's useful to think about the account types using these common questions. Who can have access? Users, admins, executives, and so forth can be granted access based on their role or anticipated level of use. And what kind of access is each user type allowed? Read, write, edit, execute, or full control levels of access can be defined and granted. Of course, this can also be customized on several levels as well. From account to application to specific documents, companies can set up incredibly complex rules when granting or denying access. 
Once the rules are defined and the structure is clear, determining who is in or out for access becomes much more manageable. Privileged access management policies. Privileged access management policies are a special consideration. It's especially important to be guarded about granting privileged access rights, as sometimes these are literally the keys to your online kingdom. Since these individuals pose the greatest risk to the organization, they become an insider threat. Special precautions need to be taken when granting privileged access rights. A few top items for consideration when it comes to privileged access includes limit the number of people with privileged access to the fewest number possible, create a vetting process to limit the risk that they are or could become an insider threat, put code of conduct policies in place to further enhance and communicate ethical guidelines for user behavior. Monitor and log activity of privileged access users very closely. Set thresholds with the most restrictive settings possible while also considering common user behavior. And finally, create a plan and process for an easy exit should privileged access need to be cut in a short window of time. Prohibited behavior. Policies for prohibited behavior, such as shared credentials, shared accounts, and shared data, shouldn't be restricted to just those with privileged access, though. Behavioral policies, like a code of conduct, are intended to help all employees understand a myriad of responsibilities they have to protect your company's assets, including account access, credential access, and even physical access to the building. When it comes to authentication and access management, all these types of access matter. Prohibited behavior policies are often key in educating employees to help them understand how their behavior can have negative consequences. Prohibited behavior policies don't just ward off intentionally bad behavior. They also help prevent behavior that is accidentally and inadvertently results in cybersecurity breaches and loss. For example, an employee may not intend to share their password and login credentials, but if they're unaware of their surroundings in a public place, such as a coffee shop or airport, when they're logging into their VDI, they may unintentionally allow someone to shoulder surf and steal the credentials that they otherwise carefully safeguard. These policies should carefully spell out specific examples such as this, but should also be broad enough to provide the company coverage for other use cases. Prohibited behavior policies also need to follow the employees across the arc of their interaction with the company. They should address role changes, which may affect their access rights. They should also address the actions employees should take when they plan to leave the company, as well as what their responsibility is after their employment has been severed. For example, the responsibility to safeguard intellectual property one obtains while on the job often extends beyond the dates of their employment in order to provide ongoing security for the company. Policies in this category might also require employees to discontinue the use of their login credentials, even if the system itself hasn't technically blocked their access. 
Putting these policies into practice by publishing a document isn't enough, though. But in some cases, laws and technology may not exist to allow other actions to prohibit certain behaviors. For this reason, many prohibited behavior policies require employees to take training and or read the policy and then provide a signed attestation that they both understand and agree to abide by the policies. Further, they're often enhanced by other technical controls or compensating controls, many of which are not may not be able to prevent the action from occurring, but can at least detect an occurrence after the fact. Disablement policies. Disablement policies specifically address when access is disabled. Keep in mind that these policies cover a variety of situations. Disablement policies aren't just for use when an employee's em employment is terminated. Other situations that need to address disablement policies include employees changing roles, contractors completing a project, organizational changes that require a shift of roles and responsibilities, new ways of working, such as a move to an agile methodology, the launch of a new application suite or technical asset, promotions and demotions employees on development plans or some other HR-related plan for performance or behavior, employees who are currently working but have given their notice, employees who are currently working but have been notified they are being laid off. All these situations are important for disablement policies to consider. Software and hardware policies. In addition to a number of behavioral policies, Authentication and access management policies also need to address the technical side of cybersecurity practices. In most cases, these decisions are made by the CISO, Chief Information Security Officer, the CTO, Chief Technology Officer, the CEO, Chief Executive Officer, or some combination of those in leadership. However, cybersecurity experts, including the employees within the cybersecurity organization of a company, play a critical role. As a cyber subject matter expert, you may be called on to both execute the policies and to help develop the strategy and process considerations. Developing an opinion on various services, functionalities, and platforms is core to every cybersecurity professional's job. If you don't know much about different authentication services, exploring and researching those options can help you guide leaders to making more effective decisions. Knowing the pros and cons of different types of encryption, for example, can help leaders and even fellow employees make better decisions on the right approach to securing their data, applications, and more. It's also helpful to keep your radar up for changes in technology and cybersecurity trends that may render your current authentication services less effective. For example, what's the difference between a hard token and a soft token? Are there recommendations on which authentication services are more effective? What are the pros and cons of using biometric services as a part of your multi-factor authentication options? Is there a browser with a known vulnerability that needs to be blocked from use when logging into your accounts? Is there a more effective tool that should be used as a primary way to monitor and block IP addresses 
individually and or by location. There is a great deal in the technical requirements that also needs to be evaluated and understood so that any written policies keep pace with technical improvements. The technical tools that are used in authentication and access management cannot be reviewed in isolation of the policies and policies should not be set without due diligence and consideration of the technology. Especially in the context of cybersecurity, the policies must keep pace with technical advancements. Thank you for joining this episode of the Cybersecurity Cohort. This is your host, Heather Holiday. Join us next time for another step in our journey of a thousand miles towards cybersecurity expertise. Thank you for listening to the Cybersecurity Cohort with Heather Holliday, an information services professional with more than 15 years experience in educational, publishing, and financial services industries. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and turn on alerts for new episodes. To learn more about Heather Holliday, subscribe to her free email newsletter, and to listen to episode archives, visit HollidayCommunications.com.